when you do blind smoking, when you basically remove the THC, just have people smoke it, usually the intensity of the high does not correlate with the percentage of THC actually on the butt. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Nate Limpton, co-founder of Canacribs, Grow House, and Grow Network. Nate, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing well. Doing well. I am uh, had my coffee. I my tea now because I'm a caffeine freak. I like to have all different variants. <laughs> but yeah, feeling good. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Back home, finally, after a lot of travel. And I'm super excited to talk to Nate and big fan of what he does out there. Brian, how are you? I'm doing well. And I appreciate you asking, Kellen, and not giving us a weather update for what we're doing. <laughs> so, I'm working on getting better. <laughs> Nate, for also, the, re- the record, yes. Nate, I will ask. <laughs> Nate, your location for the record. For the record. I am in uh, Tucson, Arizona, near the Swan and River area. For those who know Tucson, kind of near the base of the mountains. So we will check off the West Coast. Coast. West Coast, yes. Another run for the West Coast. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited to kind of dive in. Nate, for our listeners, can you give a little background about you and how you kind of got into the cannabis space? Yeah, for sure. So I've been in the cannabis space um, since I graduated college in 2010, working in dispensaries, cultivation, equipment used for cultivation. And, uh, you know, in 2011, um, after working for a few other companies, I started Grower's House in Tucson, Arizona, equipment supply company for like um, hobbyists and commercial growers. And then, um, you know, in the years that followed, we launched uh, other companies associated and affiliated companies like Growers Network. Um, That's growersnetwork.org. It's a forum and a website to learn um, cultivation knowledge, as well as communicate with other growers. And then we launched the Cannacribs YouTube series, which is kind of like what we call a docu-series, we call it edutainment, educational and entertaining, uh, where we do kind of like a walkthrough of commercial growing operations that, you know, are growing some of the best cannabis in the country. And we try and show how they do it. Like, what are their processes, methodologies, what products are they using uh, so that we can kind of make it that knowledge a little more democratized and people can learn because like, you know, right now, I don't think people know this, but there's like over 10,000 commercial like licensed businesses growing cannabis. So a lot of them are like new, never done this before on a legitimate level. Um, some of them are like families who are like, oh yeah, I used to have a convenience store. Now, screw it. I'm going to go try a hand at cannabis. And you know, there's a lot of information that people want to absorb. And I think we're providing kind of like what I think of as Discovery Channel's How It's Made episode, but on how to grow cannabis as a profession, as a business. I'm really glad you shared that. I'm excited to kind of dive into that because I think what your team's doing there is really not recognized for how much value it's doing because across the the series, it's just, just jam-packed with information. So I want to stay back when you first got started in the space. Did you always think you wanted to be in the cannabis industry? Were there hesitations to kind of dive in? Take us back to that origin days when you first wanted to get into the space. Yeah, you know, I think when I was like in college, I was like always, uh, the best way I can put it is I was very drug-friendly. Maybe is a good way to put it. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know. I didn't think of it as a career, though. I just thought of it as like a lifestyle, right? And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get into one of those careers that like everyone tells you about when you're 13. You're a lawyer, a doctor, you know, you were something. I was like, you know, I kind of took a lean towards like doing mathy things. I love spreadsheets and, you know, I love calculations and figuring things out. So ended up like kind of going the economic slash finance direction. 
and um, did an internship at Morgan Stanley. And I was like, bro, I hate this. Like, I absolutely hate it. And then I was like, okay, I uh, obviously don't like this kind of like bureaucratic hierarchical structure. I want it to be a lot more free flowing. I probably need to like work in an industry that's like not as mature. And um, maybe I even have to work for myself eventually. So what's that process going to look like? Obviously, I should work for other people and, you know, get kind of bust my chops a little bit. So that's what I did. And I was like, the cannabis industry is probably the most interesting one because, you know, I think I've heard a lot of people tell me, whether it was professors or mentors or family members that I respected, they're like, you know, yeah, it's important, you know, like maybe how much effort you put into things and maybe how lucky you are, how smart you are, all these things. But, you know, what really kind of matters too is making sure that you're riding a wave that's cresting. And I was like, cannabis seems like a wave that's cresting. So why don't I, you know, kind of see what I can do there? And that's literally the rest is history. Got into it, never came out of it. And for me, you know, like we even see comments on the Canada Cribs like YouTube where people are just like, man, I would love to go walk through this facility like you just did. And then I wake up in the morning, I'm like, dude, like these guys wish they could have just spent, you know, I just spent two days, 12 hours a day running through this facility, filming all this stuff. But at the end of it, I'm like, man, this is really cool. Like, yeah, it was kind of tiring and kind of grueling. And maybe, you know, it was more of like making the sausage (laughs) rather than consuming it, you know, which is a lot tastier. But man, there was like, I wake up sometimes and I just like, I can't, I almost don't even know what it would be like to work in another industry. And I don't think I care to find out too much right now. I'm in too deep and I'm staying here. You know, that's kind of how I feel about the cannabis industry. When when you were first walking through these facilities and getting going, what was the biggest thing that kind of um, shocked you from like an old school kind of closet grow where you're just supporting you and your friends versus... Uh, a commercial operation that's licensed that's trying to support an entire state's market. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I thought about, I was talking to someone, I was trying to give them a metaphor of like old school growers versus new school growers. And the metaphor I came up with, which I kind of liked, and maybe this will kind of get to the question a little bit. Maybe it'll be a little bit deviant. But so old school growers are like, yeah, they, they started in their closet, then they start blowing out the garage, then they did multiple rooms, you know, then they might take over a whole house. And they're like super crafty DIYers. They're usually super into like being on forums online or Instagram and like looking up what they can learn from other growers, trying to perfect their craft, doing a little bit of their own research and development. You know, I would say some growers are a little bit better at doing controlled studies versus others. You know, you know, it's like change one variable, keep everything else the same, grow, see how it turns out. Some are like change 10 variables at once and then pick the one that you like most. That, you know, <laughs> uh, That's not the way to go. But then you have the other side, which I would say is like, let's just call it traditional ag. Think in your head, like the guy who has been growing row crops of corn for three generations or something like that. And the weird thing that's happening right now is like, we're seeing this convergence of the two. Where like you have the old school growers growing in a really big setting and learning some of the commercial ag techniques. But then you have the commercial ag people coming in and, you know, saying like, oh yeah, it's just a plant's plant. You know, I can grow this plant and we're going to grow it the same way I always have. And it turns out they both have a lot to learn from each other, but they both came in not really respecting one another. Okay. But what I'm seeing now is they are a little more receptive to learning from each other 
Whereas at first I felt like it was like, you know, them really bashing heads. And it reminded me of like old school days. I'm a big snowboarder. And I didn't see this as much, but I grew up watching like snowboarding and skiing documentaries. I remember seeing those old movies, like those 80s, like party, you know, mogul skiing movies where the snowboarder would go up on the mountain. He's like that new school cat, kind of weird. And the skier would be like, dude, get off my hill, you know, and things like that. And it's like the traditional skiing method. And then they used to like separate the mountains. You have like the skiers and the snowboarders. And that's kind of like the two different styles of growers. But now it's like they're starting to play well in the sand together. And like you go to the mountain and you see the skiers, the snowboarders, they're all interacting well. And it's like you go to a cannabis conference now and it's like the, the lines are becoming very blurry between someone who like is a professional cannabis grower and someone who is, well, who has a background, I would say, in growing cannabis in the legacy market versus someone who's uh, came from traditional ag and now is growing cannabis. And what they're doing is they're realizing like, shit, cannabis actually is a little bit of a different plant. And there are these like small things that I really have to tweak when you're coming from the commercial ag side and from the cannabis side, they're like, man, you know, these commercial ag guys, they have actually learned some processes that are really efficient that we, I don't know why we haven't thought of it until now. We really should apply these. So it's really cool to see. And I think people should, uh, you know, not try and have that division of like, am I a legacy grower, am I a commercial ag? Uh, as long as they don't shit on the other side. Right. Just say like, cool, I learned a lot. I have a lot of skills coming with me, but I'm going to be a lifelong learner. Always try and learn from everything that I can to apply myself to grow the best cannabis possible. I think that's so really well said. And as the industry kind of matures, the trust factor is so critical, right? Because what Mm -hmm. you're able to do in small scale when you expand out, you need extra hands. And you're not going to be able to have that same artistic touch because it's it's not as easy to touch all the plants as, as some can do as they kind of scale out. So I'm curious to know from a trust standpoint, Nate, Cannabis has always kind of been a little more hush-hush and a little under the radar. How are you able to cultivate those relationships with these growers to allow you to kind of come in with a camera and start filming some of these processes? So the first episode we ever filmed was at Glasshouse Farms with Graham Farrar and Kelly and Ash, a few other people that were out there that were business partners of his. And we got in the first episode because we were just like, hey, it's a concept. And we knew Graham from, you know, just doing business in, um, on the equipment side. And he was like, yeah, you know, seems like a cool project. That's the kind of guy that Graham is. He's like down for anything. It's like, yeah, come on, bring, bring a bunch of cameras. Yeah, I'll just let you in the facility. We'll run around. Cool. Did that. You know, we were not efficient at all. There was like a 10 person team, still around 10 people. And then it took us like literally like six to eight months to edit that episode. And then we launched it on YouTube. And we had no idea whether it was going like, to do well or not and did pretty well. Like picked up a lot of steam, got a lot of views and we were like, cool. Like people started to take notice. People would be like messaging me in the industry and be like, yo, I saw that like thing that you did. That was pretty rad. And we were like, hey, you know, we like lost our ass financially on this first one, but we might be able to like monetize this thing in a way we can keep it going. You know, we could do it more often. And um, I ended up calling another one of our customers, which was... Um, Fat Panda up in Washington. We oh, sell them Golden Pineapple. Yeah, yeah. So they, you know, they have awesome branding. Rob is yeah. their CEO. Yeah, I walked around like, the facility. I spent a lot of time with Rob. I've worked with them closely uh, when nice. I was in Washington. I mean, so impressive. They're, sure. They they took they turned that PepsiCo facility into mm-hmm. super super impressed with their facility up in Spokane. Yeah, it's and yeah, Fat Panda, great brand. Rob, crazy guy. He's just yeah. like a <laughs> man, you know. Totally, but. 
yeah, we went up and I was like, hey, can we do this? And he, he has a little bit of a marketing mind, I would say, you know, Agreed. actually not a little bit. He has a lot of a marketing mind. And he was like, yeah, this would be great. You know, like I'm trying to build a brand, you know, the Washington market's pretty busy. So we filmed that episode and we, we, what we do is we, how we monetize the thing, like it's not a secret and I'm not trying to hide this from anyone, but like basically we go to a facility and, you know, we ask him for just like, okay, what's all the kind of equipment that you're using? Cool. And we touch base with those, those uh, equipment providers and we say like, hey, we're going to go film an episode here. If you help us fund the episode and pay for production, we'll you know, give you a little bit more time on camera. We'd love to like help get a testimonial from the farm of how they like using your product. And that's how it works. And that's what helps pay for production. So we did it. And then that episode, we didn't lose money. We we're like, holy shit. Okay, we can keep this thing going. you know. And I think now we're at like episode 40. Or something like that. I don't even know how many episodes we've done, but we had to get a second host because, like, I don't actually have the bandwidth to host all the episodes. And we have Autumn from Cultivo. She's a really awesome host and a really great cannabis grower. But uh, you know, my day job is like running this business. You know, we got like seventy plus people. Mainly, we help equip facilities and consult. So that's kind of the day job. Doing the candy cribs thing is more like the on the weekends, every three months, fly out, film a few episodes, then come back. To life and reality. How long are the recordings? Because you cut up a 45 well put together documentary. So my assumption, there has to be a ton of extra footage that has to get sliced down in there. So how long is the total recording? And how long does it take from when you, let's say you show up on a Wednesday, do you record three straight days? How does that work? I mean, we have so many terabytes of footage. It's like wild how much we film. Each episode can be over a terabyte worth of just like photos and video. So there's quite a bit. But, you know, we have to plan it with the farm, orchestrate it. They have to be ready. Our team has to be ready. All are going to fly out, converge. Um, so it's like three months planning ahead of time, sometimes even more, four months before we even get there. And we fly out there. It's usually, you know, we have a maybe like a dinner with the uh, farm the night before. Just like, hey, let's break bread, meet, meet everyone. Let me hear about your story a little bit. So we can kind of think about what direction the episode will go in and then it's usually two full days, like 12 hour days of filming. And then we fly out and then uh, it probably takes another 30 days to edit the episode ish. Now it used to take a lot longer, but we've gotten a little bit of a process and then uh, yeah, you'll see it go live. I mean, I saw one of your episodes with Jungle Boys and I was just fascinated with the type of questions you're asking about like how many people have been in this room and he looked at you and he was like, maybe five, including you. And it's just like wild to think that they like opened up their doors to allow you to come in and ask the type of questions you did, which were exceptional because I mean, you can't find Mm -hmm. that information elsewhere on the internet. So was that experience different than the others? I mean, that had to have blown you away when he only said five people. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, both of the Jungle Boys facility and a few other facilities, they've said like, yeah, you're the first crew that we've ever allowed in here. And we try and you know, respect that quite a bit. Because when you go into a cannabis operation, look, there's a risk of letting a camera crew in because, you know, what you're scared of is, will these people mess up, you know, our workflow or our processes or even worst case, are they not going to respect our SOPs of cleanliness and bring something in that could damage our crop? And, you know, we never want that to happen because it would, you know, really tarnish our reputation. I mean, it'd be bad for the farm it would be a lose, 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 you know, like no one would be happy. So the people on the crew, they're a lot of them are cannabis growers themselves. We're very, very adamant that when we go in, you know, we're like 
twice as clean as everyone else in the facility. You know, we've even, people don't see this, but we have like ISOed, isopropyl alcohol, like our equipment, you know, before going in and, you know, wear lab coats. And we just try and make sure that we're really kind of responsible and respectful of the facility when we go into it. But it is cool that they let us in and do that. And, you know, as some farms have said is, which we didn't intend, but it makes a lot of sense. They're like, you know, we have to give tours all the time, whether it's investors or you got to bring a bank through, or I don't know, you have to, it's all these people that want to come through. They're like, after we filmed an episode, we don't let them come through. We just send them the episode. And so by letting us come in once with 10 people for two days, they can prevent like hundreds of people touring the, touring so their smart. facility. And I was like, oh shit, that's right. So now I tell farms that and they're like, oh yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, come on down. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so there's these little like unintended consequences or cool outcomes that have come from it. Obviously just making friends and networking in the industry and learning some of the best practices, seeing what people are up to. I mean, that's, that's rad. So yeah, I think, I think it's massive for the industry. I think it's great for consumers mm-hmm. who can get to see behind the scenes look. And for some of yeah. those operators who maybe used to not be comfortable being on camera, that's a big step forward for them to be associated, right? You're asking someone how long they've worked for some of these companies and 10, 15, 20 years, that's a, that's a substantial career in a space that for a while wasn't so comfortable with being on camera published on social media. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's cool hearing their stories too. Like almost everyone we go to, it's like you're talking to uh, companies that are doing seven, eight, even nine figures in business. And the guy was like, oh yeah, I started dealing when I was 13 and then I started blowing out houses. And uh, yeah, next thing you know, I went legal and I started to get legit. <laughs> and you're like, Cool. You know, like those are, those are rad stories to hear rather than the guy who's like, yeah, I own uh, 37 other companies and I uh, allocated some uh, equity over here and acquired my 38th. Yeah. Hope the macroeconomic environment really supports it. You know, (laughs) I feel like that's a New Yorker you had in mind from like a big suited person when you were given that (laughs) kind of statement. So which one of your guests or which one of the facilities on Canada Cribs did you think one thing going in, but absolutely shocked you when you were leaving? You're like, wow, I, I completely mis, misrepresented or misthought about that, that guest prior to going in. Wow, dude, so many of them. I mean, what I might do is speak to some of the most recent ones we just filmed. I just got back from filming Cannabiotics in Los Angeles and then Glasshouse Brands, which is like Carpinteria slash Santa Barbara area. And for those of you who don't know, the Glasshouse brands, they were also our first episode ever. So us going back and filming them now, they're the first episode we've ever filmed where it's like a follow-up, like five years later. And it's like, cool, they had like a 150 or 300,000 square feet. Their facility now is insane. Yeah, since then, like, you know, this like 5.5 million square foot tomato greenhouse became available on the market. He was like, Graham was like, and Kelly were like, yeah, well, we can't afford it. But I guess if we go public, we could raise enough money and buy it, you know? And that's what they did. Like, that's the kind of craziness these guys are. But the cool thing is Graham is also like one of those guys that I told you. It was like, grew up in Santa Barbara, surfer guy, you know, growing in like property that he shouldn't have, thinking well, maybe it's some water that he shouldn't have or something like that. And now he's running like one of the biggest cannabis companies in the US and like, I think there are a lot of people who like look at that and they're like, oh, public cannabis company, dude, you know, screw that. That's against like the ethos of what's happening. And I think to myself, I'm like, cool, well, you can either have like Philip Morris running that facility or you could have someone like Graham. So pick your poison. And I'd way rather have someone like Graham 
Like that guy is cool as shit. So as things happen in the industry, you can't please everyone. You know, it's going to be a lot of haters. I would just say think twice before, you know, you just immediately blurt out that like people doing cannabis on a large scale is a bad thing 100% of the time. It can be a bad thing. I'm not going to say it's not, but not 100% of the time. So, um, so let me, oh yeah, sorry. I was circling around. Let me answer part of that question though, really fast because I realized, I, dude, I just start speaking and I just, just go off, right? Like, <laughs> you say going to first gear, I'm like in sixth, you know? But on the cannabiotic side, what I didn't know is that they have like the number one selling flower strain in all of California called Cereal Milk, I believe it was. And I was like, dude, these guys came out of nowhere. And they do all their own research and development at their facility, um, crossbreeding strains, pollination, like phenotyping, tissue culture, tons of cool shit. I had no idea about that going into it. I think those guys are creating... Like, I was speaking to the owner and he was like, I was like, you ever sell like, your genetics? He's like, no, nah, I've had people offer me like 50 grand for like one clone before and he's turned it down. I was like, damn, mad respect, you know? And then when it, you know, it came to Glasshouse Brands and Graham Farrar and things like that, I guess one of the weird things is like, I heard that, well, let's think of the cannabiotics one. When it comes to the Glasshouse one, I kind of knew what I was jumping into because I've known Graham for some, some time and I knew he, what he was up to. So that one, I think I understood what was going on. But if I think of some other cool ones throughout this episode, I'll interject. So you, I mean, you went to Glasshouse five years ago and now you, you went back for a follow-up episode. Has there been any like specific technology, especially because you're on the supply side as well? Is there mm-hmm. any specific technology now that like Glasshouse integrated into their operation that wasn't there five years ago that's been kind of a game changer for them? Um, or is it just kind of getting more commercial ag stuff in these facilities? Yeah, there are things that have changed over the last five years. And the weird thing about cannabis is like the uh, technological innovation for cultivating on the cannabis side is just, it's crazy. It's going at such a fast rate. It's so much faster than like any other agricultural sector. Like there's not enough money in lettuce for someone to invest, you know, half a billion dollars into R&D. <laughs> it's just, we, we peaked. We peaked on the lettuce train. But uh, you know, there's so much cool stuff. Like it, it's just that the crop is so valuable, people will spend money to optimize it, right? Once the price per pound of cannabis is hundred dollars, there's probably going to be less innovation. But until then, you know, a lot of people will be funneling their, we'll call it their, you know, profits into R and D and optimization. One of the biggest ones is definitely LEDs. Like five years ago, everyone was shitting on LEDs. They're like, these are crap. You know, never use LED. And now it's like, basically, if you're not using LEDs, it's probably because of a cash constraint, cash flow purposes. But other than that, it's like almost unilaterally understood that it's just like, yeah, you use LEDs for production, they're going to be more efficient, give you a better product. So Glasshouse is using LEDs where they really weren't before. It was more of just growing with the sun, maybe some HPS or HIDs. Um, I will also say like, you know, there's people have gotten a lot better on the cannabis side of using less pesticides and herbicides and insecticides and trying to optimize basically like root zone health, use beneficial insects. Some of the things that more of that I think is adopted from the commercial ag side. Whereas back in the day with cannabis, they were just like, see a bug, nuke the room, you know? (laughs) Everything in Eagle 20. Yeah. Every Every clone gets dipped. (laughs) You know, everything like that. And it's like, no, we're testing stuff now. Like, let's find a more elegant and healthy way to treat the plants. So, you know, that's a big shift. And then I would say controls. Like, 
now these days, like if you don't have a controller that like pings you with a text message and an email when like any parameters out of whack, then you're doing it wrong. Like you're living in the stone age. So those are some of the things that I'm seeing. But um, other than that, I mean, like, you know, still growing in cocoa, still using, you know, uh, what I would call elemental salts and nutrient side. And yeah, still growing plants. Do you think they're leaning on technology for because of margin compression to optimize? Is it a, is it a mixture of both perspectives? Like, what do you think is leading bigger brands to make the move for advancements in technology and automation? I think it's always a question of return on investment. So, you know, someone comes to you and says, like, look, man, you spend a hundred bucks and you're gonna get three hundred back by implementing this in your facility. Most people are gonna say yes. So they're getting three hundred back because you know it's a direct function of the price of cannabis though. Price of cannabis drops, now that three to one ROI could go to two to one. Or if it's a one to one, now shit, we're not spending money, we're not investing in research, you know, those types of things. But yeah, all turns out to be more ROI based, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're we're doing a lot of studies with that. Um, like I said, we have a consulting group, Canon Groups Consulting, where we have, you know, an awesome team two PhDs along with a few other guys that are wicked smart, you know, director of science, Aurora, first PhD in cannabis cultivation, North America, Darren on our team. Awesome dude. They've run a whole bunch of like side-by-side tests in Canada. They actually have a Canadian government licensed cannabis research facility, which you can't even have in the US where, you know, the Canadian government gives these different licenses out. Some are like production licenses like Aurora and Canopy have and all that. The research ones, you can grow cannabis, send it to testing labs, do a whole bunch of side-by-sides, write academic papers on it. But then at the end, you have to take the cannabis and destroy it so you can't sell it. So we have one of those up there. And um, yeah, we're testing like nutrients doing side-by-sides. There's just one that we tested, the flavor nutrient additive, where it like increased the yield by 14% versus the control in a statistically significant, you know, well-done white paper that we're publishing online here on the Ventana Plant Science website. And so that's a good product. They're also running tests for a lot of other nutrient companies who are just like, there's nutrient companies who come out and they're like, cool, we um, work in, you know, maybe a different like ornamental flowers, but they have something that works really well for flowers. They'll send it to these guys who will do a side-by-side on cannabis and then give them the results. And if it does have like, let's just call it, desired effects on the cannabis plant, then maybe that nutrient company will then bring a product into the cannabis industry. So our team does those kind of side-by-side tests for companies. And it's cool because we glean information on what's working, what isn't. <laughs> but look, there's a lot of stuff they test that literally like doesn't do anything. You know, They tell me the majority of stuff they test just like actually is just like marketing hype, doesn't really do anything. So the cool thing is we can take some of this knowledge and obviously their academic knowledge everything they've done, and we can implement it on the consulting side so that we make like our customers have what we think is all the best um, knowledge available on growing cannabis, you know? You guys uh, screen some of those ornamental nutrients as well for like other ingredients, because I know within the ornamental market, they're not required to disclose um, all the other ingredients besides the active ingredient. So is that kind of some of the services that you provide um, the cultivators up there as well. Um, I, I just know from experience yeah. that like some pyrethians can get in that aren't the major product and then you get a, a random fail if you're in California for that kind of stuff. So is, are those uh, kind of like safety measures and those kind of research projects that you guys conduct as well up in Canada? 
You know, that's interesting you brought that up. All the studies that are done on the nutrients are really efficacy trials. Yeah. Rather than us operating more like, let's say, I'll call it the California Department of Farm and Agriculture, I think it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Where they would be like, cool, you want to sell your product in this state? Give us your MSDS. And then, you know, they might have the product tested themselves before they green light it to be used. But no, we don't do something like what the California Department of Farm and Agriculture gets. But I think we could. I just don't think anyone's asked us for... They're just looking usually for more efficacy trials. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. See if it works. Can you expand on the differences of the two for those who might be unfamiliar with the differences in the two? Yeah, the differences between like testing for efficacy versus testing for like whether there's something harmful in the nutrient that shouldn't be like used on something that's ingested. Yeah. Yeah. So like really, you know, the efficacy trials, usually they're focused on three things. So they're focused on does it increase yield or does it increase quality, which is measured usually by cannabinoids or terpenes or, you know, things of that nature. And then, um, you know, on the other side, you know, let's say it's a nutrient, you're just trying to figure out if it's safe. You're really looking for, are there any heavy metals, you know, in the nutrient? Are there any things that are on a list of things that are in concentrations where it would not be healthy if someone ingested either by eating a product or smoking a product that it was grown with? And even going back to those pesticides like Avid and Forbid that we were chatting about earlier, like Eagle 20, like those are for ornamentals. Those are not for crops that you're meant to like eat or smoke. Like they're not <laughs> exactly. that stuff. So like... They work um, well though. They, they do work extremely well. <laughs> like animals, Yeah, but... You know, they'll kill you if you eat it too. So like, there it is. There's the, there's the big butt. Yeah, there's the big butt. So don't use that stuff. But the good thing is most states right now, they do testing prior to products going on market. Yeah. So like if it, someone's using that stuff in your cannabis in like any legal state, you're not buying like black market weed. You can be pretty rest assured that it doesn't have that stuff in it. Uh, But it'd be good as a grower to like not obviously use a product, go through a whole harvest, send it to a lab to find out it failed. Then you just lose probably millions of dollars. So yeah, I I think any product that would be used that way would get pretty bad reputation pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. Nate, what is one factor statistic about growing cannabis that would shock 90% of the cannabis industry? I mean, here's two things that maybe this is more market dynamic based, but you know, I think the cost of production for cannabis, like it's going to be commoditized and it's going to be like a hundred bucks a pound in like probably 10 years, something like that. Like it's, it's going to be a commodity just like any other thing that you grow, you know, just like you're thinking about grain or strawberries, people are buying futures on cannabis and, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, another thing that I think in the market, like I don't see in the next 10 years, there's going to be any interstate commerce of cannabis, even if it goes federally legal. None? You don't see any? I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think there might be like three states that would allow exportation, maybe importation, but the other like 47 states will be like, nah, we're not allowing that because they've already built cannabis commissions to regulate the industry within their state and they get a lot of tax revenue and jobs from it. And as soon as you allow things to cross state borders, at least in a wholesale way, I don't mean like, oh yeah, you buy a joint in Cali and you drive to Arizona and it's like all of a sudden, you know, you have the DEA rating or something. But what I mean is like, I don't think there's going to be like a dispensary in Cali who wholesales hundred pounds to a dispensary in Arizona. That, for example, is what I don't think is going to happen because, you know, Cali would have a pretty big advantage on growing cannabis over Arizona. And Arizona would see their cannabis market dry up pretty quickly, which would be a big hit to their tax revenue. So every rep and senator 
who wants to protect, you know, their budget would vote against that. What about states like New York that maybe don't have optimal growing conditions that have a big appetite for cannabis? What do you think will happen there from, let's say, a price standpoint? If California can grow it at a really low yeah. level, New York is, is I mean, nobody yeah, wants Yeah, it'll be a little bit more in New York. And, you know, it'll take a little bit more to grow. You have to grow in greenhouses um, to grow year round versus some other places where you can. So price will be a little bit higher and you'll employ more people. Yeah. Good old money, right? Influences a lot of decisions. It does. Yeah. But um, maybe going down to like, I'm trying to think most of the stuff, like I don't, when it actually comes to like the biology of the plant and growing cannabis, I would say this actually. So two things that I think one THC and any cannabinoid testing is pretty imperfect. So like if you're like buying something that's 25%, like you could test parts of that same plant that would register like probably 30% and some that would register like 18%. Yep. And, you know, I don't think people understand the variability of THC testing. And uh, also when you do blind smoking, when you basically remove the THC, just have people smoke it, usually the intensity of the high does not correlate with the percentage of THC actually on the butt. So I think, you know, people need something to like figure out what the quality is. And like THC is kind of like the only objective indicator out there. So people got to use it. So like, I don't blame people for using it, but I would say, don't think that it's like, you know, the, you know, the, the North star that's going to guide you, <laughs> you know, to where you want to go necessarily. So relax a little bit on that. I'd say just smoke something, see how it works with your body. You know, try to remember that strain if it does. What's your thoughts on the indica versus sativa conversation that's currently happening? Is that good for the industry? Is that bad for the industry? Is it good for consumers? What do you feel about that? You know, I think humans naturally just love to categorize and organize things. Yeah. It's just so it's much cleaner. Yeah, so much cleaner for your head. I love to organize things and categorize and put them in buckets. But yeah, it seems like those buckets are a little bit more artificial. Um, right now than maybe useful um, was what I would say. So it just comes back to like your mileage may vary. You know, like it's even funny, like people, you know, I have a fiance, right? And when I was growing up, I could be like, yeah, you know, and this is not true, but just hypothetically, I'm into blondes. And then you like meet a brunette. She's awesome. You know, well, shit, I guess I'm into brunettes. You know, like. Turns <laughs> out you like women. Right? Like, yeah. You like women. That is the category. Yeah. But it's like, so, you know, you like weed. You like smoke this blue dream. that was like 30%. You're like, you know, I'm going to love that shit, you know. And then you smoke it and it's high. But then you smoke this granddaddy perp. That was like 14%. You're like, shit, dude. I love granddaddy perp. It's 14%. And I really thought I was going to love this banger over here. But that's not the case. You know, it's like. You kind of have to just like experience it. And since everybody's biology is so different, it's like, man, just take those categories, throw them out the window and realize we don't fucking know anything. You know? Yeah, I agree. What is your favorite strain? Ooh, Dreamwalker. So Why? that's the best one that I just had the most pleasant. And it's, it's like so hard to find. These days there's so many strains. It's like if you smoke something once, like even just finding it again could be a mission, you know? Yeah. But I had this in Cali, like, yeah, probably like around five years ago. and it was just like, literally I smoked it and I was just like, felt like I was like meditating for like three hours, you know? Like, but like if you meditate in that like part where you get where you're like, okay, I'm in it, you know? Like I'm in the zone right now. Like I just felt like that for like three hours. I was like, oh, this is dope, you know? So I like that one, but I also more of like a, you know, I'm more of like a nighttime smoker. Uh, so I more smoke, you know, kind of like when the 7 to 8 p.m. kind of rolls around. 
And that's usually when I do it. I'm usually not too good at being like productive and smoking or like daytime going out with the friends and smoking as much. Yeah. I mean, I go out, but I just don't talk, you know? Yeah. No, it's <laughs> yeah. And I, obviously you can tell, like, I, I talk fair amount. So when I smoke, I kind of slow down a little bit. Same. People are like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. You know, people who know me, I'm like, oh, good, dude. Just super high in the corner, like smiling. Yeah. Like, I'm totally fine. Sleep you want to go get some food? <laughs> yeah. I'm a big foodie too, so. Who is an under-the-radar grower, brand, or strain that you think will explode over the next two years? Dude, grower, my man, Miles Sadowski. I got to give that guy a shout-out. I love that guy to death. He's a, a grower out here in Tucson, Arizona. Grows for Earth Healing. I don't know his Instagram handle. is like Miles for Grow or something. I'm going to give him a good shout-out. I'll find him while we're chatting. But yeah, that guy, literally, you know, he started Legacy Dude, like, you know, blown out shit. Next thing you know, get thrown into the fire, you know, just like running a small facility out here in Arizona, self-taught, like everything, wicked smart. And now he just built out like 140,000 square foot, like greenhouse on top of the indoor they're growing out here. And he just like, everything he reads, he just absorbs and you just have a conversation with him. He's so casual. He's like my age. We both DJ and like hang out together just casually. But that guy is like, he's one of those guys that like is so humble. And then you have a conversation with him and he just like blows your mind. You're right. So I love Miles. I think he should. He'll be doing big things in the future. He just had two kids though. So he's probably pretty busy. And then cannabis brand that I think is going to blow up. Who, who's doing something? Well, you know, this isn't a brand in particular, but this is more of a trend that I'm going to put out there. And some brands are jumping on this trend. But uh, like, for example, have you guys ever tried any of like the... Uh, kind of water-soluble nano-emulsified edibles. Yes. Yeah. Maybe. No? I've eaten so many of them at this point now. I don't... I Maybe. <laughs> like, I just yeah. want to pop them in as soon as I get them. So those are becoming more and more popular. And what I do see in the future, I think, you know, if I were to, like, guess, is, like, I've seen some sodas come out where they're, like, trying to be, like, the alternative to White Claw, where it's, like, you know, it comes on in 15 minutes and it's done in, like, an hour, an hour and a half. So it's like, you can take an edible and you're not high for like eight hours, you know? And like, they have those on the edible side. I think they're going to have them in like nasal sprays. They'll have them in drinks and it's going to change the game on edibles. And edibles are so much more discreet than smoking that I think that is going to be a huge trend. And I see some brands jumping on getting those products kind of first to market in some states. How, how would you know that those are that? Are they labeled on the, on the product or are they just described a different way? Yeah, they usually are labeled that way. Yeah. But if you like go into, if you're like in a recreational or medical market, and you walk in the dispensary or you just call them and be like, hey, do you have any like fast acting or nano emulsified product? They'll tell you. Or if they have no idea what you're talking about, they probably don't. <laughs> so probably um, but I know like, yeah, like usually it says like nano emulsified or fast acting or something like that. Like I think Wana Gummies. Yeah, Wana Quick, I think they call them. Yeah, yeah. So they came out with some... Um, Planet 13 had their high high drink that was kind of like the white claw type thing. Yeah. Um, Can. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a company called Source, S O R S E, that makes that product. It's like the, the input that a lot of people would be licensing to put in that stuff. So if you're a canvas brand and you want to do it, hit up Source. Shout out Joe. I do not get paid for this. I don't even know who runs the company. Like, <laughs> we're going to, we're um, going to send Joe at Source an invoice after this first. Yeah. Gotta love podcast. Joe. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, give me five bucks too for a drink. Right. 
What is one takeaway you've found through your experience that most growers or facilities are overlooking? I think there's a, in California, not so much, but I think in a lot of other states, they're not doing testing in their plants for certain viruses. Hop-laden viroid is probably the most well-known and popular one. And uh, what happens when you have plants, and the plants can have like varying degrees of HLV. So it's not like, you know, it's not binary. It's not like you have it or you don't. It's like your plant can be kind of infected, medium infected, or super infected. But what can happen is if it's just barely infected, you're just like, man, you know, my yields are going down a little bit and my testing results on the cannabinoids that are going down. And like, that's one of the indicators that you could have HLV along with a few other kind of morphological things in the plant. But I think there's a lot more people who are growing who have HLV in their gardens who don't know they have it and are having like issues where like, you know, their yield is just slowly going down over time. And they're like, oh, I got to switch my mom's out. Oh, I got to switch the lighting. I got to switch the nutrients. My light, you know, there's some weird happening. And it's just like HLV. You got to get your plants tested. Take some plant tissue, get it tested to figure out if you have it. And, you know, the problem is that like, the good thing is plants don't really pass it from like just hanging out in the same room. It's kind of like AIDS. You have to like pass it via like, you know, uh, tissue or like blood, things like that. But usually how people get it is like cutting clones. You'll cut one from one mother and it's on your blade. And then you cut another one from another mother. And now you just transferred it to that clone from one mother to another. Okay. They've even found out that it can transfer like through seeds. So you can have a seed that has HLV right out of the gate. So you should still be testing things like that. But um, that's one thing you should definitely watch out for, I'd say. That's a good one. Since mm-hmm. you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? Maybe that everyone's just killing it, like rolling in money every night. Like, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of people assume that. I think there was like a study that came out that was like two thirds of like cannabis businesses that have opened within the last five years are still not profitable. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just because it's got the allure, like this black market appeal, where you're just like, you know, Pablo Escobar, your money, it's like, not like that. It's in, just another business. And honestly, there's not a lot of great guidelines on how to run the business well. That's why there are a lot of consulting groups uh, like ours who try and take some best practices and apply them to different people, help them out, become successful faster, like learn from other people's mistakes, not your own. But yeah, man, it's a, it's a new industry. People are still trying to pave the way. I would say the road to success right now is still like a, a muddy trench. Yeah. It's not like a well-paved road, you know? So uh, that's a big one. Yeah. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? A little bit of putting yourself outside of your comfort zone and just trying to start at the bottom if you really want to be somewhere, but make it known that you want to learn and you want to grow. Don't assume that other people are going to know that and that they're just going to like throw you on the back of their coattails and take you with them like say like look down and put in the work but i want to be constantly progressing and getting better and i'm willing to put myself outside of my comfort zone to do that and look for you know i think the most learning i've done in this industry or just in my professional life have been the days that have been really hard and really shitty those are definitely the ones that provided the most growth for me the days that go really well are nice to have. But if you just have those days, you're going to have a false sense that you're actually good at something. 
because you're probably not. <laughs> you're just like misattributing the fact that everything is going well to it being something that you brought about. I mean, humans just fucking, I'm telling you, man, I don't even know if I can swear here, but I'll just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll start it over because humans, you know, have a natural inclination to just uh, have uh, good days and bad days and just find your own way to weather the bad days because um, then the good ones will come and you're going to be a stronger person for it. Probably something related to that. It's really well said. Thanks. All right. Prediction time. Nate, it's 2028. When you walk into a dispensary to buy flour, what characteristics will help consumers select the product of their choice? Interesting. I like this question, man. This is good. You guys are calling some good questions. <laughs> okay. I think what would be really cool is to figure out some type of like cannabis genetics. You know, if we can really attribute them to like where in the world we think that we first had a record of that product being grown. It'd be really cool to like look at the genetic material. Like I'm assuming the genetic testing is going to become way cheaper six years from now. But you know, you'd be able to tell like, oh man, this is like from the Middle East. This is some like Afghani stuff. And you know, maybe there's we come up with a better way to like isolate more cannabinoids and the artificial intelligence ends up figuring out the interaction of some of these cannabinoids and terpenes a little bit better. And by figuring out those interactions are maybe it's funny. We might come up with new buckets to put things in. And I almost think of it like the Myers Briggs test, you know, there's like INTJ and all of those kind of things. There's all these like 16 buckets that, you know, you can put things in like with cannabis. I think you, we might end up coming up with our own buckets that we make based off of kind of AI figuring out what the actually, let me see, you have a background in biology. So let's see, how would someone, what would we call that? The interplay between multiple variables. Polypharma. Okay, yes. Right. So, so currently it's only single APIs. It's how the pharmaceutical industry treats diseases. Mm-hmm. And that's why like Marinol and Syntax, which is just THC molecule, that's why they never really took off with like chemotherapy as a treatment because there's that missing variable besides just THC. So like, if you ever eat Marinol, you feel really weird. If you eat an edible yeah. that's just distillate, it's not the same as smoking flour at all, which yeah. is why wild gummies have just exploded across the entire nation is because mm-hmm. they're capturing the full spectrum. So they're including all of these mm-hmm. other phytochemicals that are in the plant into their gummies, right? Exactly. Um, so that's exactly it. Yeah. And so it'd be cool if we could like find these like categorizations of buckets that we find like certain interactions work certain ways. And these are buckets that we like don't even know what they are right now. Yeah. Let's say, and then we put them in there. That's what I think the future might look like. No. And I think you're completely right. And there's an organization called the CESC, the Clinical Endocannabinoid Science Consortium. And what they're doing is going through and trying to tie specific terpenes and cannabinoids, right? So like type 1, type 2, type 3, type 1 being THC heavy, type 2 being THC and CBD, then type 3 just being CBD dominant. They're trying to tie those three types with specific terpenes to like a cause and effect situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're on the brink of publishing all this data. So I don't really want to kind of like do a spoiler alert and take their thunder from. Um, But there's come up with some really, really... 
astounding um, results and some really, really cool correlations. They ran a massive dosing project is what it's called out in California, where they had all of these consumers. It's called um, um, an objective study. It's not a clinical trial, right? Because everyone is willingly participating and willingly giving the information, right? Uh, And so they took all this data from the dosing analysis says like, hey, I tried this strain and they know that this strain has these terpenes and these cannabinoids, and then they try to do like a cause and effect situation. And they took these massive data sets for the whole entire like California consumer market. And then they tried to correlate it to like cause and effect. And they came up with some really cool uh, correlations. Um, yeah. But I think they're kind of in the last stages of publishing that information. So I don't want to kind of like uh, disclose anything that is about to be published by them. So, but they're, they're really working on it and you literally hit the nail right on the head. And I believe that that's exactly how consumers will make those decisions in six years. And I think that the indica sativa hybrid thing is great, but I think that what this will do is kind of come in on the backside and provide that robust scientific foundation. Cause right now it's just really tough to know, okay, yeah, blue dream should be an indica, but was that blue dream lineage perfect, right? Is it the true lineage that everyone says, or was one grower somewhere in the middle there being like, you know, Blue Dream's crushing it this year. I'm just going to call this Blue Dream. No one's going to know, right? Yeah. And so there, it's like tough to say if that's truly like a, a concrete foundation within the strain naming protocol. And I think that as the industry matures more and more science gets involved, this kind of foundation will, will actually help us sort out those kind of categories that we've grouped them in. Exactly. I mean, that study sounds super interesting. I got to get my hands on that. So I'll yeah, I'll through. connect you to Dr. John Abrams and John Talleyrand. They're running, it's a, an MD and a PhD immunologist, and they have a whole group of people. Um, yeah. Love to connect you. You can chat with them and meet super, super smart people doing really, really robust scientific research on this stuff. So They're also going to publish some studies in our cannabinoid playbook. So you can definitely oh, yeah. sit back because it'll be in the playbook for the next six months. So we'll definitely have some of that research coming out. And Kellen didn't tease it correctly. He teased it, but he didn't give all the information. Away, <laughs> the information yeah, but that's why you're here. I didn't want to take you as thunder, Brian. Cannabinoid playbook. Yeah, mm. we'll play this um, So yeah. I agree. I think the effects is definitely where we're going to go. And we definitely need the science background to kind of validate that. Because mm. if you're looking to take a creative product, let's say during the day to spark, you know, some, some breakthroughs and some of the challenges you're having, and then you have like one of those heavy products that put you to sleep, it's not going to work, right? And even more so if you, if you give it to a, a more inexperienced consumer who's more hesitant to try and say, hey, like this is a more uplifting feeling and then they mm-hmm. experience it and, it and it puts them into the couch and they don't like it, they might be perturbed to not try again. And I think we really need to find that, that balance between side, scientific information to kind of validate some of these claims and also communicating to consumers when they walk into dispensary for the first time. So they're not overwhelmed because like for me, I've only been into a, a large handful of dispensaries since I'm, I'm locked into New York here. And when mm. you go into these some of these Cali's, these Washington dispensaries, there's hundreds of products. And it's like, this is almost overwhelming. I want to buy all of these, but I also want to try new products. And I'm unsure where even to start. So I would imagine some other mm. people who have that inexperience might have that same feeling when they walk into these dispensaries for the first time. Yeah. And you know, one of the interesting, interesting things that just kind of occurred in my head, but it's like, we have such a, like right now, like I would say a little bit of like a curiosity in really figuring out like what cannabis does what and like what types of cannabis do, you know, have certain, uh, I don't know, effects or things like that. But then I was thinking about like beer and I'm like, man, I, I drink like a Pilsner or I drink like an IPA. And I actually have like a 
pretty different effect from those two. And I don't think it's just the alcohol content. I think there's actually more going Terpenes. on. It's like wine drunk, right? Like you get wine yeah. drunk versus beer drunk versus like, totally I was actually I was in uh, grad school and I was sitting with my professor and he was like, mm-hmm. you go to a party where there's a keg. The yeah. vibe is way different. Everyone's like smiling, giggling, whatever. You go to a, a party where everyone's just taking vodka shots, completely different vibe. And like he's saying that he was attributing it to the terpenes. And this was like way before cannabis was legal or anything like that. And he's a, a big brew, a beer brewer. And I think yeah. that that also is why you saw this huge influx of microbrews in the last like 15 years, because they're increasing those terpene content and like, Brewing beer has truly become a really intense, like scientific process for these microbreweries. You go to like Odell's or some of these big breweries here in Colorado mm-hmm. up in Fort Collins, and they literally have like organic molecules drawn all over the entire whiteboards, and they're all like trying to figure out what hops have what chemicals in them to try to get the beer and the flavors. So yeah. I, I think I mean it's exactly it, right? I think it's the terpenes because. I mean, wine drunk is very different than than beer drunk. And yeah, or vodka drunk. Yeah, there's there's definitely some cultural things. I think there's you know cultural things with like the the people who take the vodka shots versus the people that drink the beer versus the people that drink the wine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's probably some you know multivariate analysis needs to be done on that. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> like we're going after understanding cannabis like so much more intensely than understanding beer. Like even yes. though the beer people are super into it. They're just like, oh yeah, make a beer taste great. And they're more about taste <laughs> yeah, and then totally. like ABV, right? But it's like, they've kind of stopped. They're just like, now we're just going after different flavor profiles, but they're not saying like, oh yeah, this beer is going to make you, you know, uh, it's an aphrodisiac for you or something, or this <laughs> one is going to make you, I don't know, give more energy or something like that. They're not like categorizing or marketing beers that way, which is interesting. It's just more of like a, a little bit of a, realization, but I don't think there's much to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's also challenging for consumers too, right? We're asking them to make decisions based on like form factors and then the Indica Sativa is a common one. And then we're asking them to decide on like strain names. Then we're asking them to decide on, on cannabinoid content. And now we're introducing yeah. terpenes to them. And plus, as we talked about yeah. before, the combination of those variables influences outcomes completely different. So we're kind of making it a little more challenging for the consumer than we should. But there's also this balance of like the science needs to catch up. We also have the consumer needs to catch up. So we got a lot of variables that we got to work through in the next five to six years. You know, once you start doing something, this maybe goes into the cultural practice too, but there's like, there's a little bit of um, stickiness to it. That's hard for you to like change everyone over to a new mode of thought. Like every dispensary in California can't just like say, oh yeah, we're getting rid of Indica and Sativa today. And then, um, Yeah. Uh, we're done with it because it doesn't really mean anything. Like people still want to shop that way, even if they know that it's probably wrong. Yeah. Like you can't like just take it away. It's like, it's going to take years of trying to come up with some alternative <laughs> to give these people before they can move off of it. So like this stuff is going to, you know, the change, there's cool things that are happening, but the societal change will be a little bit like yes. a this. Yeah, it's not a light switch. No, yeah. your consumers are always right. So if they walk in, they're asking, I'm looking for Indica or Sativa, you know, how can you be that establishment? It's like, you know what? We don't have that here. We don't abide by those principles. Yeah. Those are the wrong buckets. Sorry. Like, right. Yeah, sorry. We don't call things Indica anymore. They're going to be like, am I in the right store? Yeah. <laughs> cool. So Nate, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more and they want to watch Canna Cribs. Where can they find you? Yeah. So the YouTube channel is actually called Growers Network. The series is Canna Cribs on the YouTube channel Growers Network. Growershouse.com is the e-commerce site where we sell everything you need to grow cannabis. 
nutrients, lighting, you know, like 16,000 products, whether you're a hobbyist or commercial grower. Growersnetwork.org is the forum, stuff like that. And they all have their social media channels and stuff like that. And then I have my own Instagram, nate.j.lipton. If you want to hit me up, I respond to DMs like 90% of the time, I'd say. <laughs> Not perfect, but I try. Cool. You we'll know. link all those up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.